You ready, Melissa? All right. Well, good morning. I was waiting for her to switch the sound over for live stream. Glad that you're here. Who can you trust? Man, you guys. Now, I know when the football game comes on later today, you're not watching it? Uh, this is not even on my notes. I, I, I just want to chase this rabbit for a second. Uh, I've been to plenty, uh, plenty of Promise Keepers events, a lot of men there. And I do not remember the preacher who said this, but it's worth repeating. Have you watched golf on TV? Does anyone play golf? I had never tried it. I think it's probably more fun to play it than it is to watch it on TV. Have you ever noticed when it gets down to like the 17th or 18th hole in the back nine, they have all the bodies quiet, this guy makes this putt, he's going to win the tournament. And everybody's real quiet, right? He gets down, he reads the green, he walks on the other side of the hole, he's looking at it, he gets this putter, he does this number, he's lining up right, and he slowly brings the putter back, and he hits the ball, and the ball goes, and it goes into the hole. Do people, how do people react? It's a very civilized game. Bravo. Good job. Way to go. You'll never see people all painted up in war paint cheering on a golfer. In fact, they'll hold signs up, quiet, please. In the book of Psalms, it tells to give us a praise and laud, L-A-U-D. What that word laud means, means to really praise him with every being in your fiber. So, the Cowboys actually win the Super Bowl. How do people respond in the stadium? Do they go, they go absolutely crazy. Yeah! All right? And people who are usually quiet in life are yelling and screaming, giving high fives. So there are times in our worship, my point is, that we need really, with everything that we have deep down, just let it out to God and sing out with conviction who our God is. Just remember that. Um, do not be afraid to praise his name because he is a very good God. Our text this morning paints a picture of the coming economic situation. What it will be like just before Christ returns. In fact, chapter 19, verse 11, we see Christ's return. Now, God owns everything, correct? Okay, got one amen on that. And he gives us all things to enjoy and to use according to how he's created, according to his, the way he designed it. For example, intimate relations are beautiful within the confines of marriage. A way a wife and a husband can intimately be together. It's like a fire in the fireplace. The fire is there, it's glowing, it's warm, it's beautiful. But that fire gets out of the fireplace, what happens? The house will burn down. Same way when sexual relations happen outside the marriage covenant, it can cause lots of damage. I will make that point about God is the one who grants us 
all these wonderful things. And I want to remind all of us, including myself, that we must move from the fear of scarcity to the comfort of provision. As we look at our text, it emphasizes the living people enjoyed when they invested everything they had inside the economic system of Babylon. Now, Babylon is not a Pacific city here. It's, it's talking about all this man-centered stuff that goes back to the Tower of Babel. It's not necessarily a city, but a system of beliefs, a system of government, a system of politics, and a system of economy. Now, when that starts to crumble away, you can see here in our text, they begin to cry out in anguish. They're weeping and mourning, as we have read. They have relied on Babylon for the success, and now it's gone. And all they can do is stand at a, at a distance, as far away as they can, and watch the place go up in smoke in one hour, in fear at the sight of her torment. So with that said, what is the source of your prosperity? Who do you trust, and where do you invest your time, your talents, in your financial resources. And for us as believers, the answer to those questions should be God. Reminds me what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, as we walk through this text, think to yourself. Where are you investing your resources in? That's a question for us as individuals, but also corporately as a local body of Christ. In verse 9, it tells us the kings of the earth who have committed acts of immorality and live sensually with her, will weep and lament over her. See, Babylon has already fallen. Remember some, about, was it four, five Sundays ago, we talked about Babylon being destroyed and God calling his people out of there, right? And now you see these kings of the earth who are weeping and mourning over her. They are grieving the fall of Babylon, and with that, their own prosperity. And when they see the smoke from her burning, and they understand the certainty of her destruction, they stand at a distance like people who are astonished and afraid. They're amazed at the dreadfulness of the judgment. In verse 10, it tells us that standing at a distance because of fear of her torment. Literally, they're terrified. And by the way, the Greek word translated torment describes the severe pain that comes from one being tormented. And the kings are fearful they're going to share in her torment because they have participated in her sins. See, they don't have the capacity to help her, and they're disheartened. They're in awe and dread of God's righteous judgments. And in verse 10, you can see what they're saying, and they're weeping and lamenting. Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city or the mighty city. This intensifies their mourning when they reflect upon the former grandeur that Babylon once had. Her magnificence, her power, and authority are gone. And now it's, 
They're feeling the terror when they realize their own destiny follows in the aftermath of this final empire. They're watching their livelihood, all the prosperity go in one hour. You see, when God begins his judgment, the strongest arm of flesh cannot prevail. The kings with their armies will flee and be embarrassed. The bravest or most courageous hearts will be afraid and terrified, not daring to approach the, to approach the presence of an angry God. They will stand at distance in fear of being pulled in with it. They participated. And they're terrified that they're going to be next. Now turn your attention to verse 11. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her. Why are the merchants now weeping? Because the end of Babylon means the end of the global economic system that has supported their business, that have made them wealthy. Look at verse 11. It tells us, no one buys their cargoes anymore or merchandise. Now, verses 12 and 13 list all these different things. First are those found among the women of wealth and affluence, and they'll be found in construction projects that were expensive and extravagant. You have gold, silver, precious stones, and pearls. The next list includes the best in clothing, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth. The third category includes Citron wood found in North America, excuse me, North America, North Africa. Now, the Holman Christian Standard Bible renders it all kinds of fragrant word, word, what's wrong with me? All kinds of fragrant wood products. It was used in burnt sacrifices because it had a sweet aroma to it when it burned. And it was greatly valued by the Romans for its beauty and its color. They used to make furniture out of it. Very expensive wood. In addition to that, there's articles made of ivory, other costly wood, articles made of bronze, iron, and marble. That's treasured by the Romans, and even today it's treasured by many. Cinnamon, spice, incense, perfume, and frankincense. They're used in various forms of ancient worship as well as modern worship. You can look down on the list, you see food products include wine, olive oil, fine flour, and wheat. The livestock, the sheep, the cattle, the horses, and chariots, although Sam's translations were rent of that, carriages. Referring to the vehicles that these wealthy people ride in as they go around the Roman Empire on their roads. Now, if you step back and look at that list for a second, notice what they're not weeping over. What are they weeping over? They're weeping over the loss of their marketplace and their merchandise. They do not weep for sin, but for suffering. Oh yeah, they may show emotions. They may shed a tear now and then. But eternally, internally, spiritually, their hearts remain unaffected. You know, I wonder... I wonder what sometimes as 21st century Americans what we really treasure. Is it our power, our wealth, and influence? Or is it our relationship with God? And I must say this before I move on. There's a 
teaching out there that's referred to the health and wealth that if you're faithful and you give enough and have enough faith, God will bless you with money and resources. Dearly beloved, I don't see that anywhere in Scripture at all. He will take care of our needs. But God is not so much worried about our life here because this is temporary. He's worried about getting us ready for eternity, our eternal home, our true citizenship, which is in heaven. Verse 14, it states the fruit or the extravagant things you long for has gone from you. This is interesting because that Greek that's translated long for can be understood as an intense desire. It's an excessive, uncontrolled desire. A lot of times the same word is translated lust. Not quite sure what that fruit is, but it's clearly that it's greatly treasured. Let's step back for a second. All the riches and splendor of Babylon have vanished. They gain all their wealth and prosperity from Babylon's commerce, Babylon's economy. Now it's gone. It's vanished. And the text is clear. It's never going to recover. There's nothing for them to do but to stand as far away as they can, absolutely terrified by the torment of Babylon. In verse 17, we have another group of people. It says, every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor, as many as make their living or earn their living by the sea, stood at a distance and were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning. Now, in order to provide all these commodities we read about, the gold, the silver, so on and so forth, there had to be a way of transporting those from place to place. Now, Roman Empire had a great system of roads that provided this transportation. Those same roads also provided Paul and many others the ability to travel and spread the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. In fact, we have some of Paul's letters in our canon of Scripture. But there are some locations that needed a ship. Most of those items we read could be somewhere within the empire, but sometimes they came from exotic locations. So a maritime fleet was needed in order to ship these goods and services. They have shipmasters, would be like captains. They have sailors, the hands on deck, and these passengers, literally in the Greek, one who sails on a ship. So there's passengers. I, in my mind, in my opinion, I'm thinking about business people who are going place to place, selling goods and services, and making money that way. And those who provided the transportation for this to happen grew very wealthy. The shipmasters, the passengers, and the sailors. They observe the burning of Babylon. It causes them to begin to reminisce about it. Look at verse 18. What city is like the great city? They're watching their whole livelihood go up in smoke. And they're worried about it because they have put all their trust, all their faith in this economic system that would never fail in their eyes. Look at verse 19. They threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning. Now, in the ancient Near East, people would do that. They would throw dust on their heads. Now, sometimes that dust would come from graves. Sometimes it could uh, resemble mourning. A lot of times that's what it did. When people in deep distress, 
And mourning can represent lowliness. It could be a reference reminding us that we all came from dust, equating themselves to the dust of the earth. So it's a, a form of weeping and wailing and in distress. They would throw dust on their head. We even see that happen in the Bible when people lament and they're before God and they want to repent and, and uh, confess and get right with God. They throw that dust on their head indicating their deep distress and their mourning. That's what's going on here and that's what they're doing. But they weren't in distress because they want to repent and get right with God. They're repenting because they're, I mean, excuse me, they were throwing dust on their head because they're in distress as the great city was burned down to the ground. Verse 19, they say, Woe, woe, the great city, in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour, a single hour, she has been laid to waste. Sad story. And I must confess, and I told my wife this yesterday, I was back there doing some more reading and studying yesterday afternoon. I wonder, Tim, how much do you depend on America's economy versus how much do I depend on God? Now, I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with investing. But we have to remember all that comes from God. I'm blessed to serve as your pastor. I have a secular job, part-time job, but who gave me the brains and the ability to be able to get those things? God. Who allowed me to be born in a country where I have unprecedented freedom? God. Who is the one that really provides the food? Yes, the farmers grow the food. They have livestock. They slaughter it. It goes to processing plants. They process it. It gets shipped to the Walmart. And I go to Walmart, buy anything I want, any time of day. But who's behind the whole thing providing the water and the food for the animals and things to grow? God. God is the one who sets us all in motion. He's the one who stains his creation. Now, the, the best thing to think about who saved me and pulled me out of the grave? Brought me out of darkness into his marvelous light. Well, it's because I woke up, woo, I'm a Christian. No, because the Holy Spirit revealed that to me, convicted me. I confessed, repented, got the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm a child of God. It's all God. Who sustains me through my walk? Guides me and directs me and corrects me. Who does all that? God. So we stop and ask ourselves, what are we in control of? Well, control is an illusion to some degree because we don't control anything, do we? We do things to, to cultivate the land, to help things grow. We go to doctors to provide our, for our health and try to live. But ultimately, God is the one who's in control. I may have shared this earlier, forgive me if I did, but long Many years ago, Tammy's grandmother, Colleen, was in the hospital. She had had a stroke. She was down in the hospital in Dallas, so we drove down there. She was making good progress. She was kind of alert, could talk a little bit. And so uh, if you've been on those uh, intensive care units, and it was kind of like a U with a nurse's station in the middle, and she was over here. So we decided to take a break and go into the waiting room. Now, those waiting rooms are really small. While we're in there, we're talking with another family. 
The strong woman had come up for a physical, I believe. And somewhere during that physical, she passed out, lost consciousness. And make a long story short, she's now in the ICU with machines going to keep her alive. And a doctor has told the family she'll never recover. If she does, by some miracle of recover, she'll never be the same person. So you can imagine their distress. So we all held hands and we prayed right there. And we said that anything else we can do, let us know. And so Tammy and I and a few others went back to Colleen's bedside. Now, we're all on this side, and that lady and her family were on the opposite side. That's probably from here to those back doors. As we're standing there, talking to one another quietly, we saw that family gather around with hands, praying, God, what should we do? In the middle of that prayer, you ask Tammy, she'll back me up. I kid you not. I heard a bunch of screaming and wailing and clapping. And I looked over. That lady sat up and said, hey, what am I doing here? What's going on? What are you guys she came out of it just like that. I'm not saying it's because of our prayer or not because of our prayer. I reminded you that God's the one who's control. It wasn't her time to go. God said, nope, you got to go back. What a story that was. I'll never forget that for as long as I live. I'm just trying to make the point that God is the one who's in control. Then we come to verse 20, which seems a little out of place. Look what it says. After all this distress, weeping and wailing and lamenting, you see this verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and your apostles and prophets. They are to rejoice over Babylon's ruin. That's a very strong contrast to what's happened before this verse. All of heaven is invited, even commanded, because that word translated rejoice is a Greek verb. It's an imperative. It means it's a command. To rejoice over Babylon's demise. Saints or holy ones, those who reside in heaven, believers, the apostles. That was a name given to those chosen by the Savior to be his witnesses. It's commonly limited to the original twelve. The eyewitnesses to his life, his death, and his resurrection. Prophets, that includes most prophets of Israel. Those who experienced the fury of, fury of Babylon in various forms. Persecuted, misunderstood abused and tormented in various ways. That's what this is talking about. Rejoice, O heaven. It reminds me of Hebrews chapter 11, that great chapter of faith. And verse 13 of that chapter says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but have seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. In other words, these faithful knew this place wasn't their home. There were exiles and aliens on their way home. They were just passing through. And now we see they're being directed and commanded to rejoice because of all what's happened to them under Babylon's rule. Look at verse 20, the rest of it. Because God has pronounced or executed judgment for you against her. They rejoice because justice is finally realized Proving that God is a just God. 
to take lightly sin and treat it lightly, God cannot do that. And even God's justice itself is an indication of his mercy. In other words, like it says in 1 Peter, just because God hasn't acted yet, do not think he cannot and will not act in the future. He is going to set things right. A great day of reckoning. And that's why the people in heaven, the saints, the apostles and prophets are cheering because they see the justice being dealt to those who deserve it. And we've read about those who live in a extravagant lifestyle by investing in the financial power and influence of Babylon. But when they start, when it starts to fall apart, they cry out in anguish, weeping, mourning. Some translations render that wailing. They have relied in the economic system of Babylon for the success. They turn a blind eye, perhaps, to all the sin that was going on in order that they maintain and sustain their wealth, influence, and power. So let me ask you something. How far are you willing to go to sustain your own wealth, power, and influence? Are you willing to turn a blind eye and look the other way? God doesn't. And this is why they stood at a distance. They were afraid. They were afraid they were shared in Babylon's judgment. It doesn't say so in the text, but the fact that they were afraid, in my opinion, gives me some indication that perhaps they knew what they were doing was wrong, but they wanted the wealth and the power, and they did it anyway. So what's the source of your prosperity? Who do you trust? What do you invest in? Same thing with our church. What do we invest in? And here's the thing, dearly beloved, you cannot put a dollar amount on someone's salvation. That's no way you can do that. You could have all the gold and the wealth in the world wouldn't come close to paying for one salvation. Luke chapter 12, verses 16 and following, tells us that he, Jesus, told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own all what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself, is not rich toward God. And as that came to mind, I also had this thought, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. When the man in the parable says, I have all much stuff, what well, I'm going to do with it all, I'll build bigger barns. Have you noticed how many self-storage units we have in our society now? I mean, a house is like a little pile of stuff, isn't it? And if you notice how your stuff is stuff, but other people's stuff is junk, but that's another issue. 
But then we buy so much, now we have to go out and buy another unit to pull our stuff in. Now, I'm not saying that's inherently evil to have a storage unit for stuff. That's not my point. My point being, as I reflected upon this, what am I doing? Who am I really trusting? Who really does have my allegiance at this point? Is it the almighty dollar? Or is it God? Kind of ironic, don't you think, that our money says, in God we trust, but you know, that wasn't there for a long time. It was only there in the Cold War when that was put. And even our allegiance, Pledge of Allegiance to the Flag, it didn't have under God and always. It came under the Cold War as well. Who are we trusting? How about as a church? Who do we trust? Because let me tell you, there are things that we're going to be called to do that are pretty much black and white. Okay, we've got to go this way. It's obvious. It's kind of like putting that cattle in that chute. He can't go to left or right. He has to go straight ahead. It's going to be that clear. Oh, we've got to go this way. I know it. There's other times. It's not going to be so clear. But we'll all have that sense about it. Hey, we need to do this. How are we going to do this? I don't know. God's telling us to do this, right? Well, yes, he is. Well, how are we going to do this? That's when trust and faith come into it. I'm not saying blindly follow. Seek him out in prayer. Seek him out in his word. We talk to each other. Share what's on our minds and our hearts. But who do we really trust? Do we trust in the programs of the church or do we trust in God? We must never lose focus. The reason why we're here, the reason why he exists is to spread the gospel and to make disciples. Bottom line. And the minute we take our eye off that focus, we lose it all together. Have you invested your eternal salvation? (laughs) Do you you trust him for that? Have, Have you trusted him for that? Is the first question. And if you have... If we can trust God with the biggest decision of our life, we're going to spend eternity for all, I mean, ever. We have a hard, mind, a hard time wrapping our mind around the concept of forever. But if we're going to do that and trust him for that, that knowing, like we just sing about, having that blessed assurance that I know where I'm headed. If I can trust him for that, why don't I trust him for all the little things in life? This place ain't my home. It's not. My true allegiance to citizenship is to him. We must no lose focus of that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that we can trust you in all aspects of our lives. Father, forgive us for not trusting you with everything. Sometimes, Father, we like to hold back and try to control ourselves and ends up in a big mess. Father, oftentimes we do things without consulting you, without spending time with you in prayer and reading of Scripture and worship. Father, forgive us for seeking to do things without your guidance, without your wisdom. 
Father, you've promised to give us those things if we just ask. So, Father, may your spirit continue to move in this place. And may we respond in obedience to the call you place in our lives. May your will be done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?